Welcome back to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Pekulski. Today, we're going to discuss the joy of movement. We have so many people in this world that have a hard time exercising. Maybe they don't enjoy it. Maybe the story they tell themselves is that they hate it, they dislike it, or whatever it may be. The reality is Dr. Kelly McGonigal is here to tell us about why it's part of human evolution and maybe one of the most important things we can do to thrive in life. You all know that. As my listeners, you exercise, you train, you get outside, you move, and you know I'm yelling at you about that daily. It's important to know, though, why all these things are true. And it's not that I'm just blowing smoke up your butt trying to tell you, hey, it's important to get outside and move. There's actually physiological reasons for this, psychological reasons, neurochemical reasons as to why humans have evolved to be rewarded to move. So exercise is, without a shadow of a doubt, health-enhancing, life-extending and it shouldn't feel like a chore. It should feel like a reward. It should feel like a necessity of life. It should feel like something that is invigorating and fills our soul and ultimately allows our body and our mind to integrate and thrive. I'm going to say it again, to integrate and thrive. The body and mind are one. They're inextricably linked. And if you want to improve your mind, you must also improve your body. If you want to improve your body, you must also improve your mind. Realize these things cannot be separated. The things we think about while we're training matter. The way we frame our brain while we're walking, while we're going into exercise matters. All these things are so important. They're a great opportunity that lay in front of you and me to ultimately create our greatest life in a mind that supports us that is happy, that is joyful, that is fulfilled, and all these amazing things that Dr. Kelly McGonigal is going to tell us about. Kelly's a professor at Stanford, where she's recently started teaching dance class as an adjunct to her professor duties, which is super exciting. And she invited me out, and I promise if I go, I'll record that as well, because that would be a comedy video for sure. Um, and maybe I'll even drag Dr. Huberman along with me and we'll do <laughs> we'll do one of her classes. Anyways, guys, I hope you have an amazing day. I hope life is absolutely wonderful for you. And I'm so grateful for you being here. If I can ever do anything to provide more value for you, I'd love to hear from you guys on social media. Also on iTunes, today's podcast is brought to you by Blue Blocks. Blue Blocks has been a longtime supporter of the podcast, and I hope they continue to do so because all the feedback I got on Blue Blocks is absolutely phenomenal. Everybody seems to just love the way they fit, the way they work, and how they're improving our sleep. If you haven't already heard me talk about Blue Blocks, Blue Blocks is my go-to blue blocking glass source. So if I'm sitting on my computer like I am right now, I'm wearing my Blue Blocks clear glasses. They are very mild blocking blue. And I find sitting at the computer all day tends to make my eyes really tired and sometimes affects just my energy throughout the day. I really notice an increased focus and increased vitality if I do keep my blue blockers on while I'm sitting at a computer. As the day progresses toward dusk, I start to shift into wearing my yellows and my reds depending how bright it is outside or how you know, I like to, as the sun comes down, I like to start putting on things that are blocking the unnatural light that exists in our environment. It's just ridiculous to me how much light pollution exists in our society. After having spent weeks in Bali, it's just incredible how much better sleep is when you're not just getting destroyed by light pollution. If you hear that bird chirping in the background, he's trying to say hello to you guys as he's saying hello to me. So 
Uh, I hope you're having a wonderful day. Head over to blueblocks.com and use the code MUSCLE to get you hooked up with 15% off. Blue Blocks is B-L-U-B-L-O-X. And uh, we do our best to keep the number of sponsors extremely limited on this podcast because it's only ever going to be products that I 100% believe in that I use on a regular basis. And usually it's in the case where I'm reaching out to them and saying, hey, I love this product. Can you hook up my listeners with an amazing discount, which Blue Box has been so gracious to do. And uh, thank you guys all for your feedback. If you have picked up a pair of Blue Box, I'd love to have you share a picture with us on social and let us know what style you like. So personally, I've been using the Smith and the Hudson. If you guys want to know what I'm using, I've got a couple pairs of Smith and a couple pair of Hudson. I've also got them for my kids. I don't let my kids sit in front of the television, especially in the evening without blue blocking glasses. They hate wearing the red ones because it does change the way the TV looks. But after about 10 minutes, they don't even notice anymore. But first, it's a challenge, and I'll be transparent about that. But you know, they much rather wear the yellows. So if you're new to the blue blocking scene, you may want to just pick up a pair of yellow and your kids start with the kids with that. If you're hardcore like me, you make them go straight for the red. And after a few minutes, they're just used to it. Their brains are kind of adapted. But anyways, guys, without further rambling for me, I hope you love this podcast with Dr. Kelly McGonigal. And shout out to Blue Blocks. Enjoy the show. The Joy of Movement. Dr. Kelly McGonigal, when I saw your book, I was absolutely fascinated and had to get you on. And I'm so grateful you obliged. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, well, thank you. I love the work that you're doing. Thanks. Yeah, I think there's an overlap. As I said, just briefly before our call, I'd love to hear more about what you're doing and how you're doing it and how we can ultimately use movement and exercise to help people, as I, using my terminology, live their greatest life. And maybe it's um, creating better emotional states or maybe emotional resilience or, or really whatever state they're trying to achieve. I think there's this opportunity that exists and people don't tend to acknowledge it. So I'd love for you to tell us about this because obviously this is your area of expertise. Yeah. I, mean, I would add to that list also creating a sense of belonging and community. I'm a psychologist, a scientist by training. And in that world, my work has looked at basically the mind-body relationship and often it's been from the perspective of the mind, you know, channeling down to the body. So if you're feeling angry, how does that affect your immune system? Or how do relationships protect your health when things are stressful? But when it comes to movement, I'm super passionate about how moving your body can affect your mental health and your mood and your relationships. And so the joy of movement is all about that science. And it's something that I'm interested in from the intellectual perspective, but also from my own lived experience. I mean, I am out here living my best life, teaching dance classes and fitness classes. I think of it as basically a joy induction and community building. So much value in that. So I get to travel the world very much like yourself and I'm teaching and I get to experience some people who are very cerebral and you know, you get people who are doctors, who are scientists, who live in their own head and they're so disconnected from their body. And it's funny because people are coming to me to build muscle or to lose fat or whatever happens to be specific to their fitness level. And sometimes the number one prescription I give them is to dance and people laugh at me, but it's really, they're, they're just so psychologically disconnected from their body. They need just some organic, complex, joyous movement of expression to allow their brain and body to start communicating I again. I completely understand. Let me tell you a quick story. So part of my research has been looking at how to help healthcare professionals, particularly doctors, deal with the enormous stress that they're under in their careers. 
And a few years ago, when I was brought on by the Stanford Hospital to teach a class on resilience and emotional well-being to physicians, I still remember one of the physicians accidentally showed up in one of the Bollywood dance classes that I taught at a local gym. And we had this conversation later. She dropped out of the resilience class where we were basically sitting around and talking for a couple of hours about resilience and connection. And she's like, I just like your dance class is all that I need. And it's the direct experience of joy. It's the direct experience of being able to experience, express, and move through emotions and allowing a different version of yourself and to connect with others when you are that joyful or powerful version of yourself. So I'm 100%. And it's one of the reasons why, like you, I spent a lot of time talking to people about things. And I guess we're doing that now, but I am all about encouraging people to actually just move, to do it. Sure. If we can if we can convince people to go and have a direct experience, then then we won the day. Well, so I think the access point for my demographic is breathing, right? So you'll know that breathing being the most reflexive thing we do as human beings is massively influential in spinal mobility, shoulder mobility, hip mobility. And someone's breathing very shallow and up into their chest, their ability to access movement at their spine and ribcage is extremely limited. So sometimes when it comes to someone who's very in their head or they're very muscle-bound bodybuilders who haven't moved at all for a long time, other than in these just single planes, the easiest access point for me, at least it's within the realm of possibilities for them, is just like, hey, I just want to do some breathing. And it could be deep breathing. It could be shallow breathing. It could be this, this holotropic breath and all these different access points to allow them to start to feel what it's like to, one, connect with your body, and two, feel the psychological benefits of just breathing. And when we start to get that thin end of the wedge in the door, like I call it, it sometimes becomes an easy transfer into saying, okay, well, now while you're breathing, we're going to do it standing up and let's get your arms moving a little bit. Like you're almost in like an extreme swinging walk. And then that progresses to, you know, effectively what you're doing, but it's just always encouraging people to explore different types of movement. Because I think you would know if you put one of these people into one of your dance classes, one, their ability to actually do it would be extremely limited. And then they're, they're likely oh, of getting no. discouraged. Oh, I'm not going to let that stand. Um, well, let me. If someone can't move, what is your entry point? Yeah. So my entry point is meeting people where they are and helping people experience yeah. the joy of movement, no matter what their capacity to move. You know, so recently I held an event where it was my first time teaching dance and movement to that community. And we had people in wheelchairs, people with neurological disorders, people with severe developmental delay, people recovering from stroke. And we moved with joy and community music. I mean, that's, I view that as part so, of my responsibility as a movement instructor is to know what the access points are. So I would never say to somebody, you know, if you don't consider yourself a dancer or if you have physical limitations that you can't actually touch into this joy that is part of our I, I capacity. I agree, humans. but let me just interrupt for one mm -hmm. second. So who decided who was coming to your dance classes? Was it people who decided, hey, I see a dance class and I want to come? To the book launch event that I just described? Yeah. Yeah. So this was held at the JCC in New York City and we opened it up to the public and okay. we told people that this is an event where everyone is welcome. And so people showed up. What if it's someone who self-identifies as having stress from movement or anxiety or judgment yeah. from that movement, right? That's kind of where I'm heading at this is like many of these men in my demographic are not even 
open to the idea. I've never even thought of the idea of like, hey, I want to go do some organic dance classes and I want to do some organic movement because I know my body needs to express. I know my body needs to flow because they just have never done it. It's not even on the radar and they're so insecure about it. Maybe it brings them anxiety more than it brings them joy. Well, here's the great thing we know is that movement has specific and predictable effects on the nervous system and the brain and your state of mind. So, you know, sometimes when I go to events lately, I've been talking to venture capitalists and CEOs and tech people here in Silicon Valley. And I'll have them come up to the front of the room and have them do different movements, try them on, mimicking like like working with battle ropes or doing the port de bras of a ballet class. And in that very moment, right, ask them, how does it feel to put these movements in your body? And it's extremely reliable. People will say, I feel powerful. I feel strong. Yeah. I feel graceful. I feel beautiful. I have them put up a picture of someone racing in a wheelchair and mimicking that movement and leaning forward and feeling that posture and people report feeling free. So I think that when it comes to helping people experience the psychological benefits of movement, that it's about understanding the deep connection, as you said, it can begin with the breath. We know that if you breathe in a specific way, it's going to alter your heart rate variability, the balance of your nervous system, your state of mind. And the same is true with movements. One of the things that, you know, working with such a broad population over the last two decades through movement, one of the things that's given me is a confidence, you know, if you listen to both the science and also what people tell you when they move in specific ways, that it is possible to invite people in and give them that experience. Amazing. So your book, The Joy of Movement. I think the minute I saw it, I bought it and started listening to it and love it. Tell us about it and let's just start there. So I want to know maybe why you decided to write it and who your target market is and what the biggest takeaways from the book are over time. Obviously, that's going to be the primary focus of our discussion, but it's such an interesting book to me that, uh, as I said, you know, I think this needs to be in the hands of every human being starting from childhood. And we're so in this tech world where people stop moving. And then we're asking why kids at 13, 14 years old are depressed. Um, but I'd love to just take us down the path of where this book started for you. I mean, I guess it starts from what you could call the fallen condition, which is that we know that human beings, we evolved to move. And all across the world, you know, every country it's ever been studied, every demographic, every age, that when people are more active, they are happier, they're more satisfied with their lives, they're less lonely, they have more meaning in life, they are less at risk for things like depression or anxiety. So this seems to be a, a universal truth about human beings and how we're wired. And at the very same time, our cultures and societies are leading people to move less. So we have this gap between what it seems like we're born to do and what our society is nudging us towards to be less active and more sedentary. And so one of the things that I wanted to do with this book was help to help myself and help others better understand the deep connection between physical activity and all the things that bring joy and meaning to humans, whether it's our sense of purpose in the world, our sense of mastery and growth, our relationships, the direct experience of pleasure and joy, uh, our ability to be resilient to stress and trauma and even loss, how intimately those human capacities are tied to movement. I think like the people for whom this book really resonates are the people I, I sort of like wrote this book as a love letter to, which is 
people like me who maybe have a susceptibility to something like anxiety or depression or have been through trauma or loss and have found through movement their best medicine. So I wanted people who have fallen in love with movement for whom you know running is a part of their life or yoga or strength training or sports and who know it's not just about sculpting muscle, but it's a key part of their identity. It's part of what allows them to be a better version of themselves. It helps them keep their emotions in balance and continue to move forward in life. I wrote this book sort of as a love letter to them to help them understand why this is real and why this matters. And also in part to fitness professionals, because I think that often in our culture, the fitness profession is seen almost through this like sort of aesthetic lens, like they're here to get your your glutes in shape and not really understanding the tremendous community and, and almost therapy that is happening in movement communities and from movement professionals. And so each chapter walks through one of the reasons that people love movement, the things that people will tell you brings them joy or meaning, like the ability to experience mastery and growth and get better at doing really difficult things or moving to music, or moving in nature, or moving with other people. So each chapter is focused around one of the things people love about movement when they love movement, and how that's connected to a core human capacity to experience joy and resilience in life. So you know, the chapter that looks at doing really difficult physical things is also a chapter about the human capacity for hope. Yeah, so great. You know, I walk through each of the chapters all at once and then individually, and each of them kind of stands alone as this super beneficial opportunity that exists to optimize human body. You did such a great job with tying in the neuroscience, you know, getting a little scientific and also getting it kind of easy to consume in a story form and definitely a book that I suggest everybody go out there and dive into. What part of the book was kind of your maybe most joyful thing to produce? Did you enjoy diving into the neuroscience? And I'd love to have you talk a little bit about that because that's my of interest compared to you know, like sharing some of your personal stories. I think was an interesting way to keep the audience and the reader really engaged. Yeah. Well, one of the reasons I shared more personal stories in this book than I have in previous books is you know, I got some feedback from an editor of my last book, The Upside of Stress. And one of my editors had said, you know, Kelly, you ask people to tell these really revealing stories about their lives and often you know, difficult experiences, and you're not in the book. And she says, I, I feel like it's cheating a little bit. And so I did make a real effort in this book because mm. so much of what moved me was other people's stories. And if I'm going to ask other people to speak honestly and authentically about some really deep and difficult things like suicidal thinking and grief and depression that I needed to be willing to put myself on the page to in a vulnerable way. So that's the primary reason that there are stories about me in the book is because I was so grateful to all the people who shared their really vulnerable and moving stories with me. But in terms of being most joyful, so the most joyful part of writing this book actually was that feeling of getting off of the phone or Skype or leaving a physical meeting with one of the people in the books or one of the communities in the book. So, you know, for example, the training gym in Fairfax, Virginia that I went to, it's a boxing gym and a strength training gym for people who have physical disabilities or neurological disorders. Like the feeling of walking out of that place or the feeling of getting off a phone call with someone who's describing how joining a running group helped her move forward from grief. 
there was this incredible joy of being inspired by what I was witnessing. Psychologists sometimes call it sympathetic joy or empathic joy, the sense of being uplifted about the strength that is in individual humans and in communities. That was actually probably the greatest joy for me. I, so many times I would get off an interview and like walk into another room and say to my husband, I'm in love with every single person I interview for this book because human beings are incredible. So that was joyful. You know, the science is when I share neuroscience, I'm often looking for findings that for me induce a state that is similar to the joys that I'm writing about in the book. So I feel like individual scientific findings can inspire hope or awe or wonder. So I'll give you an example of one of my favorite findings in the book, which is something that a few scientists have dubbed hope molecules. And I feel like this is one of those scientific findings that just like blew my mind when I first read about it a few years ago and then continued to blow my mind as I investigated more like what this, how this works in the body and in the brain. And you may have actually talked about this on your show because I know you've had such great science on your show. But this is the insight that our muscles are basically endocrine organs. For decades and decades, people thought muscles exist to pull your bones around or to stabilize your skeleton against force, right? That's what muscles are for. They contract and then they relax. And what we now know from really just the last decade is that your muscles are constantly manufacturing all of these chemicals and proteins in the same way that like your brain does or your adrenal glands do. And they hold on to a lot of these proteins and molecules until you are engaged in physical exercise. And when your muscles are contracting repetitively and using energy and basically allowing you to engage with life, a requiring exertion, your muscles start pumping out all of these proteins and chemicals that are really good for your physical health that do things like reduce inflammation and boost your immune function and you know regulate blood sugar, kill cancer cells. I mean, these are really health-enhancing chemicals and proteins, but many of them also travel from the bloodstream to your brain and they can cross the blood-brain barrier. And in your brain, these proteins have the effect of increasing neuroplasticity so that all of the strength that your brain has to adapt and learn and grow is enhanced and particularly enhanced in a way that seems to help people recover from depression or protect people from depression that helps prevent neurological disorders, even just sort of ordinary cognitive decline from aging and things like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. And these are chemicals that the only way to get access to them, the whole pharmacy lives in your muscles and one of the first papers that was published on this, I think maybe 2014, the people who were writing about them dubbed them hope molecules because it's this idea that, yeah, humans have a natural capacity to be resilient to stress, to stay engaged with life. And your muscles have the capacity to manufacture molecules that will give you hope, that will sustain that capacity for hope and resilience. And I think like that gives me a feeling of awe and wonder and to understand that every single time you exercise, it doesn't even matter what you do. As long as you're using your muscles, using your whole body, using energy, you are releasing these chemicals into your bloodstream that can transform your brain, as you know. Yeah. And I love that it ties back into evolution too, right? It's this idea of like movement will be rewarded as far as proliferating the species. And I thought that was super interesting awareness to create for the audience is these things would have been historically rewarded. If you were active and moving and maybe actively moving in an intense way, all these neurochemicals are going to give you this dopamine response that makes you want to do it more often. And it makes a lot of sense because obviously the most fit and healthy amongst the species would be the ones that you'd want to kind of perpetuate the species. Yeah. So actually, I think, you know, the idea is a little bit even deeper than that. The idea is that human beings survived 
if they were engaging with life in both mm-hmm. a physical way and a cooperative way. So, you know, it wasn't so much like you need to be fit in the sense of being particularly strong or having particularly amazing cardiorespiratory fitness, the way we might judge it now, like in a fitness competition. The idea is you need to be physically strong and capable enough to, you know, forage for food and as a community come together, you know, build structures to live in. Early humans, what we think of as modern humans from a couple million years ago to a couple hundred thousand years ago, as this human brain we have has been evolving, they were really physically active, moderate intensity, several hours a day, vigorous intensity, maybe an hour or two a day. And that movement is how humans have engaged with life. And so your brain is rewarding you not so much for being like the strongest person in your tribe, but being someone who can contribute to your tribe. And I think this is a really important distinction because when you look at the levels of physical activity that our brain rewards us for, you don't have to be someone who could run an ultra marathon, although there are many reasons why you might want to, but you know, to be somebody who can go for a jog can do a you know a dance party in your living room with your kid, that these levels of fitness are also rewarded because that's basically what engaging with life asks of us. And that, you know, you mentioned dopamine, dopamine being sort of the first essential reward that we get for being active along with adrenaline. And that kicks in almost immediately. So if you go from sitting down to standing up and moving around doing almost anything, you will get the reward of dopamine and adrenaline, which is why most people feel immediately better when they shift from being sedentary to just any level of physical activity. But then if you persist a little bit longer in the way that you might need to, if you were foraging for food or hunting or coming back together after a long time out looking for food, that your brain will reward you further with endocannabinoids and possibly endorphins and even oxytocin, which are these brain chemicals that not only make you feel better, like that initial dopamine and adrenaline burst, but they're also brain chemicals that dramatically reduce stress, anger, anxiety, physical pain, and help us connect with one another. You know, oxytocin, endocannabinoids, endorphins, they're all social brain chemicals. They make us more willing to cooperate and better able to take joy in connecting with others, in helping others, and playing with others. And I think that, again, that's the, when we talk about our brain rewarding us for being active, it's also rewarding us for being collaborative as a species. And our brain will reward us for not just being able to do hard things, but our willingness to share the benefit with our friends and our family and our community. Are you familiar with any studies that have actually quantified different types of exercise? So obviously dancing is something you're doing and you know, walking is something that's very common in running and, and maybe it's weightlifting or whatever. I'm just curious if there's any studies, because I just haven't found any that quantify the levels and amplitude of these different myokines and, and yep. you know, yep, ho- there the are. hope molecules. So there are a number of studies and a number of sort of conflicting reviews. So the first thing I'll say, like I can give you a few scattershot findings, more just to let people know the kind of work that's being done. I don't think anyone is convinced that we know to the degree that you should feel really confident saying. So if you want to maximize your myokines, you want them surging in ideal levels for your brain, you need to do 20 minutes of HIIT training followed by you know 40 minutes of strength training. Nobody knows to that level. Yeah, but certainly a moving there, target, right? There are a couple of things. So if you're looking at the brain chemicals that we just talked about, so there actually seems to be a difference between if you're looking to enhance mood and social connection, that seems to be a little bit different than if you're looking to maximize the myokines. Myokines that might be neuroprotective. 
So if you're looking to get the mood boost and you're looking to connect with others, moderate level intensity seems to be really most effective for most people. You know, heart rate in that mid range, not going breathless for most of your workout and persisting for at least 20 minutes. So this is the kind of thing that a lot of common exercise experiences are organized around to get your heart rate up, to require you to breathe more deeply or more quickly, but to a degree at which you could also hold a conversation, which is really an interesting way to assess your own intensity. Because again, if you think about it, the brain is partially rewarding you, not only for being active, but for being able to connect with others. Sometimes I tell people, if you want these brain benefits of the endorphins and the endocannabinoids and the feel better effect, you know, do something that's a little bit challenging. You can feel your heart going and also you could talk. You're not so breathless that you can't talk and like maybe do it with someone else so that you're actually getting that benefit of the connection. But if you're interested in maximizing the brain resilience and transformation, there does seem to be a dose response relationship with sort of every measure of intensity. So going harder, going longer, going further, I don't know if it's directly linear, but this is one of the reasons to think about, I often will tell people what's the hardest thing that you can do and still enjoy or get some meaning from. That's not going to like, you know, run you into the ground, but to think about at least some of your workouts being ones that are that intensity that is really maximum of what you can endure because there's something transformative at working at really beyond your comfort zone. And, you know, if you look at extreme athletes, they often have extreme levels of some of these myokines like irisin. You know, there's one study I write about in the book where these ultra endurance athletes had irisin levels in their bloodstream that almost didn't make sense. They were so much higher than what you would typically see. And irisin is a hormone that when it reaches the brain, really enhances neuroplasticity, is really protective against things like Alzheimer's and depression, can boost motivation, boost learning. So I think that it's uh, two different ways to think about what we're learning from the research. And then also with the big caveat of there's no study that says you're screwed if you can't do X, Y, or Z. There are plenty of studies that say as soon as you're doing something, you are beginning to get all of these benefits. Right. So Kelly, there seems to be this huge subset of the population. Maybe it's not huge, but at least it seems relatively significant that has some type of negative association with all exercise. Yeah. I don't exercise. I don't like to exercise. I hate exercise. And, and just all of those possessive expressions of, of you know, ex- around exercise is really interesting to me. And I'd be curious if you had any thoughts and perspectives on people who maybe say, you know, probably not people listening to my podcast, but uh, maybe there's people out there who have family members who say, hey, you know what? I hate exercise or I don't like the way it makes me feel or you know, it hurts or, or anything like that. And yeah. how we can start to get them to move closer to what is ideal for their body and mind to thrive. There are a lot of different ways you can get to that place. I think that's why there are so many people who really believe that they hate to exercise. I think that actually depending on sort of which category you fall in, there's a different solution or a different way forward. So it, it is quite different if you're somebody who currently has a body that produces a lot of physical pain, including when you begin to move. That's a different lived experience than somebody who hates exercise because they go to the gym and they stare at themselves in the mirror and there's a voice in their head that says, you're not big enough or you're too big or you're too old or you're too whatever. So there are a lot of reasons you can get into that. 
that place of feeling like you hate exercise. And before we talk about you know some of the solutions to that, one thing I want to say is actually I have empathy for all of that. It's all real. People aren't wrong if they tell you their direct experiences. When I exercise, I experience pain, misery, self-criticism. And also, I've been really convinced again over two decades of working with people with all sorts of challenges and life experiences that when you approach movement differently, it is possible for everybody to experience pleasure and meaning and joy through movement. A lot of it is about self-trust and listening to your body and putting yourself in places that support the kind of joy you want to feel. But I think that for most people in our society, the number one reason they hate exercise is because they think of exercise as a punishment for eating or enjoying life or having the body that they have. And so as soon as they go to exercise, they do two things that deprive them of joy. One is they've got that whole monologue going. So the frame of the experience is, I have to track how many calories I've burned to undo this thing that I ate you know, yesterday, or I need to do this because who I am as a human being is inadequate or unattractive and other people judge me. So there's this whole frame around it that is around shame, guilt, stigma. It has nothing to do with aspirations for who you want to be or the actual joys that are possible from the experience itself. So that's one reason you get the whole frame around it, including the voices in your head. And the other thing is that then people choose exercise that they think will maximize calorie burn or weight loss or appearance changes. And they often will fail to choose a movement experience that connects to things they already love, like being in nature or moving to music in ways that feel like a celebration or play or competition. You know, there are so many things that you can experience through movement that are immediately rewarding that you already love. And people almost always walk away from that because it doesn't connect with the idea that exercise is about sort of maximizing your burn or fixing what's wrong with your body. And so it needs to be prescriptive and it needs to feel like a punishment. When I'm working with people who really hate exercise because they're sort of having the wrong experience is to actually start by thinking, what's something you love? You already love it and you don't have enough of it in your life right now. And then it can be something like, well, I love singing. You know, I love music. Things exist like a karaoke spin class, which by the way is super fun and I've been to them. Or winning a choir where you are standing and swaying. That's movement. I have a friend who just recently started taking a group choir class that is in a community center. Most people wouldn't think of that as exercise, but you get your heart rate up, you're moving your body and you get the endorphins flowing. You know, people think they have to go to the gym and pay someone to yell at them when you could just go out in nature, go for a walk, adopt a dog. Anyways, I feel like part of it is think about something you love that you want more of. Maybe you want to feel like a badass, go to an axe throwing facility, flip tires, do cool things with your body. I've talked to so many women who thought they hated exercise because they thought it was about getting on a piece of cardio equipment until they fell off of it because they're so exhausted. And when they went to like a strength training gym and they were flipping tires, they were like, this is amazing. Like it's a totally different experience. So that's one way to think about it. Yeah. How necessary do you think progress is? I think I'm just curious about that question before we kind of dig any deeper than that. Yeah, it depends. It's an individual difference. You know, in the book, I write about the difference between me and my twin sister. We both love exercise. It's really important to both of us. We both use it for mental health care as well as for other reasons. But she's the kind of person who needs to make progress. And it's one of the reasons why she loves running. She loves getting a personal best. She loves being first in her age class in a race. For her, that idea of mastery and success is part of what makes 
movement and training exciting and interesting and and part of her identity. Whereas honestly, I could care less about that. I have like almost zero interest in getting better when I've been able to find activities that while I'm doing it, feel amazing. I like how I feel when I'm kickboxing. I love how I feel when I'm dancing you know, with my students. And I will probably only get worse at it over time. Like if I'm lucky enough to live long enough, I can reasonably expect that my capacity to do some of this stuff will deteriorate and I fully expect to continue to get joy from it. So I feel like this is part of finding the joy of movement is about figuring out what drives you and when it's a healthy drive to really pursue that. In the chapter called Overcoming Obstacles, I write about how for many people, setting a, a challenging goal and then discovering that you can succeed at it through effort and through support from your, com- your community, that like erratically transforms what you think you're capable of. And it's not just motivating to keep exercising, but it's motivating in the sense of opening up doors for other roles and relationships and goals in your life. And every human being has to figure out what's that core joy that is going to drive you to continue to move in ways. It's not even a trick. It's not like mastery is important because it'll keep you exercising. Mastery is important because it's how human beings experience meaning. If that's true for you, it's almost like exercise is the vehicle for mastery rather than thinking about mastery being sort of the device you use to keep you at the gym. You said something there. I said you fully expect to receive joy from it, even as the skill may decline. And I think that fully expecting to receive joy needs to be spoken about a little bit because I think a lot of people don't necessarily expect that. And a lot of people, as they feel progress is necessary, maybe get anxiety around this challenge of like, gosh, I don't know if I can ever master something like this. I don't know if I can ever progress. I'd love to, to have you just speak to how you created such a positive psychological association with expecting to always receive joy. Because yeah. I know a lot of people just won't start if they know they can't progress or if they know they can't get mastery or if you know there's some anxiety around having to progress. And it's an interesting paradox because also at the same time, most people who do things will find that it does get easier with time and you experience mm-hmm. more joy and benefit from it. So it's not like- but they won't start because of fear. My insights around this come from a few different places. One is that ever since I first started teaching movement in my early 20s, I very early on was asked to teach individuals with chronic pain, physical challenges, recovery from you know surgeries and illnesses, and an aging population. And I was able to very clearly see that in what other people might judge as a limited movement experience, people were experiencing all the things that that I would experience in what might look like a more advanced or difficult movement experience. So that became very clear to me. And I'm so grateful that I experienced that in my 20s so that now in my 40s, as I'm looking forward to my 50s and 60s and 70s, I continue to see every day when I teach my women who, the oldest women who are in my dance classes are in their 80s and they're still expressing and experiencing joy through movement and you know including songs like dancing to Lizzo and Dua Lipa and continuing to connect to the joy of popular music. Um, I expect to continue to have that joy as well long into my 80s and 90s if I'm lucky enough to live that long. But the other thing that has given me this insight is you know some of the wisdom traditions I and mean, we haven't talked about this yet but some of my own research as a psychologist 
has looked at the benefits of contemplative training, things like mindfulness and compassion training. And one of the things that you connect to in those traditions is the idea of impermanence, that there's no success, no joy, or no state that lasts forever. And coming to terms with that is part of how human beings experience resilience and happiness in life. And so I actually think that movement can be a wonderful way to learn that kind of wisdom, although it can be quite difficult as you're going through it. I've talked with a lot of people who maybe at one point were a professional athlete or for whom a particular sport or activity was really important to their identity. And then because of injuries or life changes, they could not participate in the way that they used to. And what does it mean to move forward knowing that you may never run another you know, personal best in a marathon? Or what does it mean knowing that you can't train in the same way? And what do you shift your focus to? And maybe it's something like shifting your focus to mentoring others, to bringing people into this world that has meant so much to you, you know, coaching them, shifting the joy that you get from having to be the best and always getting better to this sort of like bigger than self perspective and meaning. And there's a lot of ways that that can happen, but I feel like part of it is wanting to have that perspective and actually allowing movement to teach it to you. Yeah, I think there's so much value then. That's effectively what I went through for a while, whereas you know, this type of training and this very high level competition was my life and it was my identity. And as soon as I removed it, it was a very challenging experience to still go back without having the same high level goals and still train. Like it, it really took away my incentive, you know, the internal motivation mm-hmm. had shifted and become external. And then trying to go back and make it internal was a whole different type of training, a whole different approach for me. And it was definitely a struggle. So I wanted you to kind of segue into this chapter around overcoming obstacles, because I think that's an interesting one to explore and, and have people understand ultimately the necessity of looking at these things and, and overcoming obstacles and maybe how we can use joy or movement to guide us down the path of overcoming obstacles. Yeah. So, you know, that chapter opens with a story about a Tough Mudder obstacle course and a woman who had had an early traumatizing experience trying to learn how to swim, where essentially she had been like chased up a high dive board and forced off of it by a swim coach, even though she was terrified and didn't want to jump. And decades later, she was doing a Tough Mudder obstacle course. She decided this would be the moment to face her fear and she trained for it. And she jumped off this high dive obstacle with a sense of choosing that this was the moment where she was going to allow herself to experience that same kind of panic and fear, that same you know sense of overwhelm, all that paralysis she had felt on the diving board when she was seven or eight. And in that moment, know that her boyfriend was cheering her on and being in the company of other strangers who were facing their fears by jumping off the platform. And she had this kind of milestone moment where she jumped and she changed the story about her experience and her fear of water and her fear of jumping, where she had the direct sense that she could choose to do things that scared her. And she was at a point in her life where she had the autonomy to make that choice and that there was power in reclaiming it and choosing to do the thing that caused her fear. And the chapter is basically about that ability for movement to allow us to change the story we might have about who we are and what we're capable of, and also where we can find support in our lives. And that by choosing a movement goal, you know, maybe you're training for your first race, or maybe you're learning a new skill, or you're doing something that scares you, that it's a metaphor. And that by approaching it and learning to overcome, whether it's the inner obstacles like your own fear, or whether it's physical obstacles, one of the women I write about in the book became paralyzed in her 20s. 
and over the course of the chapters is learning how to walk, which seemed impossible after spending years in a wheelchair. She talked about boxing and how boxing has helped to give her the sense of herself as a fighter who is able to keep moving forward even after having this enormous loss where she felt like her body had completely betrayed her. Partly it's about figuring out for yourself, who do you want to become? And what's the movement form that allows you to embrace that part of yourself and that metaphor so that you can have these milestone experiences? And it can be any movement form. You know, The one that I write about was about a yoga pose that I was terrified to do. And it took me a couple of years to learn how to do it But that first time I was able to essentially fall backward, it's like a trust fall, but trusting my own inner strength. First time I was able to do it was a revolution in my body that forever changed how I thought about my capacity to take risk and to be brave. And the body is an amazing vehicle for experiencing the human strengths of courage and resilience and growth. Yeah. Sometimes that fear and stress can really immobilize us, right? This tendency to freeze when we feel those stress responses and and just the opportunity to be present enough to mobilize and use movement to mobilize that stress may be one of the greatest gifts we have to not allowing ourselves to embody it. And I think you do a really good job of describing that in the book and you know allowing people to just be super present in this reality that movement is there to help you grow and help you evolve and help you survive and thrive. You know, I think every human being will benefit from effectively any type of organic movement, as many types of organic movement as we can possibly uh, subject ourselves to. And it absolutely translates to everyday life. So in that same chapter, I write about the woman who by the way, thought she hated exercise until she discovered in midlife kettlebell training. And it was Mm -hmm. totally different than anything she'd ever done with her body before. You know, she told me about the enormous pleasure that she feels from a power swing and how she feels like she's taking on a giant when she does it. And then later on, you know, on Facebook, I saw her talk about this experience where she'd been going to the airport and there was this tree that had fallen in a storm that was blocking the entire freeway. And everyone was just turning around and going home. And she was like, in that moment, she felt a surge of, I know how to take on a giant. And she convinced her taxi driver to pull over and they got out of the cab and they got some other people to help. And they moved a tree so that people could continue to get on with their life. And I felt like that's such a perfect example of when you have a physical experience that says that I am powerful. I heard from so many people who literally will feel like they're having a panic attack before they do a deadlift. It's instinctive. You're about to do something hard that requires your full energy and strength and focus. You're going to have a stress response, but you learn through movement how to move through that paralysis, how to move through that fight or flight into a challenge response. And your nervous system does not forget that. So the next time you have that kind of paralysis, a freeze response, a a flee response, your nervous system is like, wait a minute, I remember how to tap into my strength and courage. We're going to alter your physiological and psychological reality in this moment so that you can have this difficult conversation or you can help someone who's struggling and sort of overcome your desire to, you know, not get involved or whatever courage looks like in that sort of the real world example. You said something in there and I thought there was worth pulling back to is you said, I am powerful. Is that something you ever use maybe in your dance classes and when you're teaching people movements is this concept of, you know, saying maybe phrases to yourself that are empowering? 
Oh, yeah. You know, it's interesting. I know of a few different movement forms that do that, that use these phrases or these affirmations. My version of that is I often encourage people to lip sync or sing along. And I'm pretty strategic about choosing songs where if people are doing that, they're going to feel good about what they're singing. So that's like my version of it, because that just that taps into sort of who I am and, and often who's coming to my classes. But I think it's a great idea. Anytime that you can bring together different modalities, different ways of really allowing an idea or an experience to sink into your brain and into your body, you know, doing it all helps. I also include things like taking selfies. We know that when you take a photo of yourself and you reflect on it later, it enhances your positive memory of it and it enhances your identity of it. So that's another way that if you want to feel powerful and strong, take a picture of yourself, ask someone to take a picture of you, you know, holding that plank or or doing that exercise and then look at it later. And it's a way of saying to yourself, I am powerful. I am strong. Yeah. It's something I actually do in exercise. I do with a lot of my clients and people around the world is, you know, if there's something that you're maybe having a hard time with within exercise, maybe it's going through some discomfort or staying focused. It's saying something like, I am powerful. I'm courageous. I have the courage to do another rep. I have the focus to stay in this zone. Like any of those kind of emotions, almost those thoughts. And if you just repeat them to yourself when you tend to fail or when you tend to quit or when you tend to lose focus, it's a really powerful way I find in shifting through those challenge points in exercise. And I think that would be the same way if you're running or if you're yeah. maybe dancing, you know, any of those kind of, oh, you know, I guess. So yeah. many of the runners I talk to have those inner mantras. And so I'll just, I'll give you a little bit of a tidbit from the science on this, because I've looked at a lot of the research on self-affirmation and what works. Using the second person really helps with enhancing performance and attitude during competition or or physical exercise. So it might be saying, literally, you would say, you are powerful. You can do this. And it's not like you're talking to somebody else. You're talking to yourself. But there's something about using the second person that for whatever reason makes it more effective so that people you know, can work harder, can enjoy themselves more, are more likely to believe it. It's like a way of cultivating a self-to-self relationship that allows you to be more strategic about mentoring yourself and supporting yourself. So if anyone listening likes using that sort of self-talk, think about talking to yourself in the second person. And there was one study that came out that I thought was so funny. Sometimes these little hacks, like they seem so silly and yet they can dramatically amplify the benefits of some of these techniques. It found that nodding your head while you say it or think it makes it more effective. You're literally creating the neurobiological feedback of agreeing with what you're saying. So anyone who wants to use that, you've got your favorite mantra, I am powerful, turn it into second person and nod your head while you're doing it. And you're going to you know, have a better chance of finishing that race. And smile. That's something. Yeah. Smiling. Exactly. Yeah, that's something I do is is making people smile. Yeah, unless what you're going for is fierceness. And then I have my students sometimes practice making faces that are quite aggressive, but because it amplifies the emotion that we're working with, which might be power or confidence. Awesome, Kelly. The book is The Joy of Movement. Thank you so much for your time. Where should people go to find more about you and pick up your amazing book? Yeah. If you can spell my name, Kelly McGonigal, or if you just do a search for the joy of movement, you will find me. I can't imagine your name being all that challenging, but I bet people mess it up all the time. There are a lot of different ways to spell McGonigal. Is there? <laughs> yeah, yes, actually, because they're all misspellings of McDonagall at Ellis Island coming over to the US. Basically, everyone got their name got misspelled and mispronounced. And so there are dozens of spellings all unique. That's how the McGonagals know who our true kin is by the particular spelling of 
McGonagall. It's probably more than your listeners care to know, but um, anyways. <laughs> but at least they know how to spell the joy of movement in Dr. Kelly McGonagall. That's right. That's a wrap, ladies and gents. Thank you for tuning into the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. As always, I'm massively grateful for you guys being here. I think I'm you know, just truly blessed to wake up every single day and live my dream and be able to connect with amazing experts like Dr. McGonagall and so many more. I'm so grateful for your time. I feel like I'm learning something new every day. I'm adding to my skill set and hopefully I'm adding to yours with this valuable information provided by all these amazing guests. We are traveling the world now teaching the six pillars of a lean, healthy, and muscular physique, which is this framework that around which I base this podcast. I think giving you a framework is really important to start understanding, you know, where should I start? And how can I make progress? And where's my low-hanging fruit in my life? So if you don't know the six pillars, the simplest way to understand it is my belief is there's really only six things that we can impact as humans. So how we move being a big one, speaking of Dr. McGonagall, how we think being a big one, so maybe our psychology and, and our mindset, how we sleep, how we breathe, and how we eat being your, your five primary inputs. So I'll repeat those. It's move, think breathe, sleep, eat, and the sixth one being the environment in which we do all that. And the environment is encompassing of light, air, sound, EMF, electromagnetic frequencies or fields, and people. People is a big part of our environment as well. And all those things are interacting with our body on a day-to-day basis to create an internal response, to create an internal environment. That internal environment becomes you. That becomes your expression on the outside, whether you wanted to be muscular or lean or healthy or vibrant or vital. All of those six things are contributing to how our internal environment expresses on the outside. And that's really how I frame this journey of ours. I think it's a really simple way to start to understand all of those inputs that we can have that create an internal environment. Anyways, guys, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast with Dr. McGonigal. Definitely head over to Amazon and pick up her book now. There's a link for that in the show notes. Her book, The Joy of Movement, was an amazing read. I read it cover to cover. I loved it. I actually read it the second I saw the book. The book existed before I talked to Dr. McGonigal. I read the book and I reached out to her and said, you know what, you really have to be on my show because this is something I preach to everybody. I want everyone to realize the the opportunity that exists within exercise, both just from the movement itself, but also from linking emotions and linking joy and happiness and fulfillment and really being powerful in everything we do in life so you can thrive. Thank you all for joining in. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, I would love it if you could share with at least one person that you know and love who is deserving of living their greatest life. And I think we're all deserving of living our greatest life. And hopefully you can be happy today. Share your happiness and joy with your loved ones and with one person who maybe you aren't so happy with. Send them love from your heart. Have a great day, guys. And Bukulsi signing off for the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Pikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest 
interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.